0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K.
1: And now a word from our sponsor, SixSense. SixSense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum... I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. Our guest today is Nigel West. His true name is Rupert Allison, one of the best-known British historians and authors on intelligence books. He has written some 25 books. He's a former conservative member of parliament, some 10 years, and he still regularly teaches uh, both here uh, and in Europe and even on cruises from time to time. He's the European editor of the World Intelligence Review, based here in Washington, and European editor of the International Journal of Intelligence and Counterintelligence. He has been called the experts, experts, by some in terms of intelligence. And many believe that his, his uh, revelations are so precise, it is almost as if he worked for intelligence, but he doesn't. So Nigel, welcome. Thank you. And I think what might be fascinating to our readers is the frequent references in spy literature, certainly here at the museum, to the Cambridge Five, you probably have know that case as well and have written as much as anyone. Could you, for us, give us an overview, a summary, and an insight into the Cambridge Five?
0: These were five young men who at university at the height of the depression in the early 1930s made an ideological commitment to the Soviet Union. Uh, their motivation is hard to understand now, uh, but it is very clear that this was a deep, long-term political commitment to the Soviet cause. And what's fascinating is that they were all recruited before they ever really had access to classified information. And having volunteered to the Soviets, the NKVD, at that time the principal Soviet Intelligence Service directed their careers and of the five, uh, four of them became pretty significant members of what I guess you might call the secret establishment or the corridors of power in Whitehall. Not enough to influence policy but sufficient to betray uh, political trends, policy decisions, uh, intelligence, operations, personalities, methodologies, all together, these five individuals from a period really from stretching from 1936 to 1951 and you could argue in the case of Kim Philby up until January 1963 that these people represented the greatest hemorrhage of classified history uh, perhaps in, uh, in anybody's memory. So they consisted of uh, Kim Philby, who was self-recruited uh, after he left Cambridge. Uh, he subsequently recruited a friend of his who was still at university, Guy Burgess. Uh, he recruited one of his tutors, uh, a man called Anthony Blunt, and he then talent spotted uh, John Cairncross, And uh, a fifth individual who subsequently went into the Foreign Office was Donald McLean. And all five of these spies were directed into particular departments of state. So Kim Philby eventually joined in September 1941 the Secret Intelligence Service, an organisation that he remained a member of until he was fired in November 1951. So he was responsible for providing thousands of documents, and I know there are thousands because I've seen them in the KGB archives, thousands of documents from the British Secret Intelligence Service, the Holy of Holies, if you like, within the British establishment. Uh, His close friend, Guy Burgess, uh, also joined briefly the Secret Intelligence Service, uh, worked for a branch called... Uh, Section D, and then he pursued a Foreign Office career. He'd also worked for the BBC and he was immensely well connected. Uh, uh, One of uh, his friends, uh, Anthony Blunt, a fellow predatory homosexual, uh, joined the Territorial Army in 1938 through the intervention of his brother and then in June 1940 joined the Security Service MI5. And he remained in MI5 until May 1945. He did one further job for MI5 in Rome in September 1945, and then he left the security service. And he ultimately would not be uh, positively identified as a spy, although he came under suspicion in 1951, until April 1964. And he remained in the UK. And ultimately, in November 1979, he was exposed as a traitor by the Prime Minister. And by that time, he'd been appointed Keeper of the King's Pictures, then Keeper of the Queen's Pictures, and in 1954 had received a knighthood. So, again, another example of somebody directed into a secret part of government. John Cancross, one of the most brilliant men of his generation... Uh, often called the fifth man. Uh, He was the last to be recruited, the only person in history to have become uh, the top uh, graduate in both the Home and Foreign Office Civil Service examination, joined the Foreign Office, then switched to the Cabinet Office, then worked at Bletchley Park as a codebreaker, as a cryptanalysis, Uh, then he went to the Secret Intelligence Service and ultimately ended up in the Ministry of Supply. Throughout his period uh, in the secret corridors, he tipped off the Soviets to the development of an atomic weapon, Uh, supplied information about Enigma code-breaking at Bletchley Park, and then towards the end of his civil service career, compromised information relating to Britain's Uh, civil nuclear power program. Uh, He resigned from the civil service in 1951 when Burgess and McLean defected. And ultimately he lived abroad Uh, and in 1963 he made a confession while he was working at Northwestern University. And he was interviewed by MI5 and the uh, the security service Uh, uh, and uh, the FBI. And then finally we have Donald McLean who joined the Foreign Office Uh, worked in Paris in 1940, came back to England, was then posted to the United States, and uh, he was less involved in secret intelligence matters but more involved in policy, uh, certainly relating to uh, nuclear uh, policy and cooperation between the United Kingdom and the United States. He defected with Guy Burgess in 1951, and uh, ultimately... Was placed in, or had been placed in charge of the American Department of uh, the Foreign Office. So these five spies uh, provided a window into Britain's policy making establishment for Moscow.
1: Were any of them ever tried, brought to trial for espionage, for treason? None of the five were ever prosecuted, and there were good
0: reasons for this. (coughs) Burgess and McLean defected in May 1951, just when McLean had been identified as a Soviet Soviet spy suspect and was going to be brought in for interrogation. He skipped the country two days before that interrogation was scheduled to begin. Their departure uh, compromised Kim Philby. He was interrogated. He denied all involvement in either espionage or tipping off Burgess and McLean, but he was nevertheless fired from the Secret Intelligence Service in November 1951, and he was never prosecuted because when eventually he was offered an immunity from prosecution in January 1963, uh, he fled Beirut where he was then working as a journalist and ended up in Moscow where he eventually died. So that leaves just two of the five left. John Cancross was fired, uh, or was allowed to resign from the civil service when he came under suspicion in 1951 as a consequence of the Burgess and McLean defections, but there was never any evidence against him. He went overseas, worked for the United Nations, and then was Professor of Romance Languages at Northwestern University. And then the last of the five was Anthony Blunt. He remained in the United Kingdom, And it wasn't until, although he was interrogated 13 times between May 1951 and April 1964, he uh, was offered and he accepted an immunity from prosecution. And he was the principal source of the information that we have uh, up until now relating to the damage that the five did, how they operated, who their contacts were, the kind of information that they passed to Moscow. Now of course in Moscow, uh, many of the archives uh, have been opened up and we can see for ourselves the scale of their treachery.
1: Will, do you think those those files, those records which you have seen, uh, is there any chance any of those would be made available to the public? Oh yes
0: the documents that have been made available to (coughs) individual historians, uh, the Russians are pretty commercially orientated and they are perfectly happy to to enter into agreements whereby documents will be declassified uh, at the moment of publication where individual historians have made that agreement with them. Uh, That of course is uh, an anathema in the United Kingdom or the United States where uh, governments declassify documents and then historians are on their own uh, to make uh, what best they can in the scramble to look at these documents and to interpret them and to represent them. Uh, r- Russians take a rather more commercial view of these things. They are after all a capitalist country. <laughs>
1: yes. Nigel, did you ever have an opportunity to meet any of the Cambridge Five? Yes, I spent
0: a long time with Anthony Blunt Uh, I'd been commissioned to write a wartime history of the security service and he agreed to see me in 1981 and specifically to discuss his wartime security service work and of course on, on the basis that he was the only person practically the only person in MI5 who was deliberately breaking the need to know rule the compartmentalization rules where he was looking at information and then meeting his Soviet contact on a weekly basis and passing over uh, hundreds of documents, Uh, he had um, a, a particular insight into the workings of the security service during the Second World War. So he was of enormous help to me and he appeared to cooperate candidly and indeed revealed to me the identity of a spy that he had personally recruited and run himself, a man who was in MI-14 called Leo Long, and who I wrote about in 1981. And we also discussed uh, John Cancross, whose name uh, was relatively unknown at that time. And subsequently I went to interview John Cancross, and he was a little less forthcoming but I got to know him uh, much better in later years and in 1996, just before his death, uh, I helped uh, ghost his autobiography.
1: The, um, you mentioned that you talked to uh, Anthony Blunt in 1981. Now this was some two years after he'd been exposed?
0: Yes, he was exposed in November 1979 yes. by the Prime Minister, stripped mm-hmm. of his knighthood, publicly humiliated, He was angered because he believed that the offer of immunity that he had been granted in April 1964 implied an element of confidentiality. Uh, Actually, there was nothing ever put in writing. Uh, He was offered an immunity from prosecution by the Attorney General, Sir John Hobson, uh, but nobody said anything. Of course, it was implied. It was in everybody's interests that this should be. Uh, confidential but in November 1979 the Prime Minister who was after all a barrister qualified lawyer uh, was advised by her then Attorney General Sir Michael Havers that it would be impossible for her to stand by given the oath that she had given to the court and allow Anthony Blunt who was then contemplating a legal action to protect his reputation to stand by and watch him perjure himself in court and on that basis Mrs Thatcher horrified that Anthony Blunt had in effect got away with treachery and had not been publicly exposed, uh, made a statement to the House of Commons which uh, wrecked his career and Anthony Blunt didn't exactly go into hiding um, but he kept his head down and made only one, uh, gave only one interview to the Times newspaper and thereafter refused to discuss uh, his involvement with espionage with anybody except for me.
1: And that resulted in a book, did it?
0: That was a book called MI5, British Security Service Operations, 1909-1945. to And as an addendum, uh, because Soviet penetration of the Security Service was obviously an, an important aspect to MI5's wartime work, Uh, there is an account of the espionage of Anthony Blunt, uh, of John Cairncross, and uh, of Leo Long.
1: Now early on, uh, Philby was regarded as a a rising young man with the potential to perhaps end up as as head of the service, even. Uh, That certainly is the the, uh, aura that uh, seems to surround him. Was that in fact true?
0: I think that this is part of the mythology. I mean, there is no doubt that he was a very personable, remarkable man. There were very few people in the secret intelligence service at the beginning of the war, even with a university degree. Most of the people employed were retired army or naval officers uh, who had not taken the academic path Philby was charismatic. He was the longest-serving foreign correspondent in Spain during the Spanish Civil War. He spoke French, German, and Spanish fluently. And because of his work as a journalist, he could write sentences with a beginning, a middle, and an end, which retired army officers tend not to be able to do. So he was a rising star within uh, the secret intelligence service, but he was handicapped, first of all, by... A terrible speech impediment he had a very bad stutter secondly he came f- of mixed race uh, so uh, within the British establishment at that time the fact that his uh, grandmother uh, had been an Indian would have excluded him from high office he was known as Shishi which means in Hindi half and half and that made life very difficult. Quite apart from that he was an alcoholic drinking a bottle of whiskey a day and on top of that uh, he had four children born out of wedlock and on top of that his first wife of course had been a communist and he was suspected of having murdered his second wife so uh, given those factors I think it is reasonable to presume that the British establishment whilst being willing to exploit his very considerable talents and charm would not have been willing ever
1: to have contemplated him uh, as chief of the secret intelligence service. I think those who take an interest in intelligence history uh, look back on the Cambridge Five and all and all uh, associated with it, and one wonders what was the effect of the of the exposure of the Cambridge Five both on the British service itself and on its relations with its primary allies, the American services?
0: I think first of all it's hard to judge the impact but I do not believe that any of the five uh, betrayed information that resulted uh, in the deaths of uh, many individuals. We have proof that Anthony Blunt, and he readily accepted, that he was responsible for identifying a secret intelligence service source in Moscow who was executed, and I have a very long confession from this spy before he was executed, which will appear in Triple X, which is the next book from the KGB archives. Uh, Kim Philby has been credited with being responsible for the deaths of many of the partisans saboteurs, people who were infiltrated into Albania after the Second World War. But whilst it is certainly true that he betrayed the policy decision that had been made to run those operations, there is no evidence that he had access to the kind of tactical information that these particular spies will be landing on this beach on this particular night, the kind of information that would be of direct use to a security apparatus in Albania. So I do not believe that uh, the Five, although they hugely compromised the Government Code and Cypher School at Bletchley Park, the Secret Intelligence Service, MI5, I do not believe that their actions resulted in the deaths apart from this one man known as Gibby's spy because his handler had been Harold Gibson. Uh, That is a not a particularly popular view but I've never seen any evidence to the contrary. It is certainly the case that Anthony Blunt neutralized any anti-Soviet long-term impact that the security service had on Soviet intelligence investigations in the United Kingdom and it is certainly the case that Kim Philby identified the personalities and the operations and where he could, uh, the names of sources for this, the secret intelligence service. But again, I've yet to see a name that can be directly attributed to, uh, to Kim Philby.
1: You know, as you and I speak, <clears throat> the, they have just released in, in Great Britain uh, the uh, secret uh, memoir, confession, if you will, of, of Anthony Blunt. And um, obviously you worked closely with him, you knew a lot about the man. Uh, were there any surprises in that for you?
0: Uh, not really, uh, and the reason was that we discussed this, uh, and uh, he said that he was going to write a short memoir. It was 30,000 words, which is a less than uh, half, really, or probably a quarter of the kind of book that you would be looking at. And he told me that the reason why he didn't wish it to be published in his lifetime or even soon after his death was because he had particularly betrayed the trust and confidence of his brother Christopher, whom he had manipulated in order to obtain a commission in the Territorial Army in 1938, which had set him on his path to joining the Intelligence Corps, and then the Intelligence Corps had led to an offer of work for the Security Service. And he felt... He certainly expressed no remorse to me ever about having betrayed uh, anybody except the trust of his brother, and that was the reason why he kept it uh, quiet. He didn't dis- he didn't uh, disclose in his memoirs um, anything that that surprised any of the people who were specialists. He didn't identify uh, other people that he had recruited, like Leo Long, whose name doesn't appear anywhere in the manuscript. Uh, he doesn't mention uh, Kim Philby uh, whom he knew quite well, uh, Donald Maclean, whom he hardly knew, um, and he mentions the fact that he had been pitched or recruited uh, by Guy Burgess and he described that very simply as the biggest mistake of his life which I think you might consider to be something of a
1: understatement. Mm. Nigel, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you th- this afternoon. Um, and I should comment for the readers that this extraordinarily extraordinary overview, if you will, of the Cambridge Five with insights into some of their motives and behavior has been delivered without a single note or reference to any other uh, uh, reference or book or anything else. And so I, I sort of get that. I, I get a very uh, a good idea of why they call you the experts' experts. We look forward to your next book, which I think you said will be called Triple X, and which will include material that you described in this afternoon, specifically some of these uh, documents that were delivered by Kim Philby into the hands of Soviet intelligence. So, Nigel, thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to doing another one with you. Thank you. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spy org. Thank you. Hey all, Rick here.